Good morning. Can you all hear me? It's wonderful to be back in Brooklyn Zen Center. Uh, I want to talk this morning about bodhisattva values and social activism. And I imagine that what I have to say this morning is, is uh, something that most of you already know or have heard. But uh, some of you were, had first Zazen instruction this morning, is that right? How many of you had first meditation this morning? Wonderful, okay. Well, um, this practice we do here in the uh, Soto Zen tradition, uh, Japanese Buddhism, um, this Zazen, um, it comes, is part of the uh, Mahayana Bodhisattva tradition. This is a practice that we do uh, that's part of universal awakening. So uh, this tradition uh, came from India to China, was brought to Japan by Eihei Dogen, who I'm going to read from, and then came to America uh, through Suzuki Roshi, my teacher's teacher, came to California, and then came to Chicago where I teach and to Brooklyn here. Um, I'm going to read something from uh, Dogen, who was in the 1200s. This is from uh, something he, from his uh, extensive record, a uh, very, very long collection of very short talks. Um, this is from one of his later ones in 1251. He said, the family style of all Buddhas and ancestors is first to arouse the vow to save all living beings by removing suffering and providing joy. Only this family style is inexhaustibly bright and clear. In the lofty mountains, we see the moon for a long time. As clouds clear, we first recognize the sky. Cast loose down the precipice, the moonlight shares itself within the 10,000 forms. Even when climbing up the bird's path, taking good care of yourself is spiritual power. So this family style, it's a common Zen expression for um, teaching style of a particular lineage, but here he's talking about this teaching style of all of Buddhism, all the Buddhas and ancestors. And uh, basically, Buddhism starts the way of awakening. Buddha just means awakened one. Um, first from arousing this vow to save all living beings, to free all living beings, to care about all living beings, to remove suffering and provide joy. So we, we practice together with all beings. And then uh, this rhythm of practice, which I'll talk more about, he, he discusses here very concisely and poetically. He says, in the lofty mountains, we see the moon for a long time. As clouds clear, we first recognize the sky. So we do this practice of sitting and facing ourselves and facing the wall and working on ourselves is part of it. And some of us go off into the mountains or do um, monastic type practice periods. But then we come back from that, cast loose down the precipice. The moonlight shares itself within the 10,000 forms. We take care of ourselves, he says, even when climbing up the bird's path, even when we don't know our path, even when we're right here. Taking good care of yourself is spiritual power. But we come back 
into the world. So I uh, teach at uh, Temple in Chicago and north side of Chicago, uh, very much like here in Brooklyn, a non-residential uh, practice place where people come from working in the world, working in the city, and uh, have a chance to experience this rhythm of turning within, facing ourselves, then going back out and practicing in the world. And the point of our practice of turning within is to come back out and be helpful in the world. And they're not really separate. In the Lotus Sutra, uh, arguably the most important sutra in East Asia, it says that the single great cause for Buddhas appearing in the world. The one reason for uh, awakened ones to appear in the world is to help beings on the way to awakening, to relieve suffering. So that's what this is about. This meditation practice is not just a self-help practice. Of course, doing this regularly, uh, sitting regularly, uh, every day or many times a week, we start to recognize our deep communion with something ungraspable and, and something that can't be captured in words, but that's uh, ultimate, universal, wonderful, wondrous. And um, this rhythm of practice is about how we express that, each in our own way, in the world. But again, this isn't just a self-help practice. It's not about personal psychology, although it may include that. We sit facing the wall. This isn't to keep people out. We don't build walls to keep certain kinds of people out. We don't try and keep out people who are different from us. We learn from differences. We see ourselves through differences. We face the wall as a mirror to see ourselves. We face the wall as a window to see our deep interconnectedness and communion and non-separation from all beings. So um, part of our practice is this deep settling, this samadhi, this meditative practice and awareness that um, starts to inform us and is, you know, and, and is, is wonderful. It helps us, it helps each of us in many ways that we don't necessarily realize and not in the ways we expect. Uh, but then also, how do we express that in the world for all beings? And part of our, uh, one, one of the many forms of teaching about that are, are the bodhisattva precepts. Bodhisattva means enlightening beings, beings dedicated to awakening of all. And we have in our tradition from Dogen um, and Sotos and 16 bodhisattva precepts. They start with taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So again, most of you know all of this. But taking, maybe all of them come from just taking refuge, returning home to Buddha, to awakeness, to that quality of being present and awake that's always available. But then we have particular precepts that um, not, they're not commandments, but guidelines, how to ca carry this awareness into the world. 
They're reminders. Like a Buddha, a disciple of Buddha does not kill. A disciple of Buddha does not take what is not given. A disciple of Buddha does not misuse sexuality. A disciple of Buddha does not lie. Um, and these are, you know, guidelines to uh, how to be helpful in the world. And, you know, in some ways they, I think they boil down to three things. Being helpful instead of harmful. So the basic teaching of ahimsa, not harming in Buddhism. So when we say disciple of Buddha does not kill, that means also to help others not to kill. It also means to help support life. So there's a positive side to all of these. Um, how do we uh, act in the world, speak in the world, be aware in the world to be helpful rather than harmful. And then also to be this inclusiveness. So one of the precepts is to vow to embrace and sustain all beings. This isn't about just you know certain kinds of beings, just Buddhists, just Americans, just certain, you know, uh, just even just human beings, all beings. This is, very wide and inclusive. And then uh, I would say part of this is to be respectful, to be respectful to oneself, but to all beings. One of the precepts is to not speak of the faults of others. This doesn't mean that we can't recognize when harm is being done and speak out about it, but we don't have to you know, get into blame and and uh, demonizing so-called others. Uh, we can speak about harmful actions in terms of how to be helpful, how to dispel our ignorance, how to be helpful instead of harmful. Our, the precept of angle, anger, the way we, I don't know if, if uh, probably this is the, the same translations you use here, disciple of Buddha does not harbor ill will. So we don't hold on to anger. Of course, anger arises when we see harm in the world. There's lots of opportunities for that these days. But what do we do about it? Anger is a, you know, a wonderful, powerful emotion. How do we use it constructively instead of letting it choke our, you know, we can get choked by it ourselves. We don't hold on to it. We don't harbor it. We don't turn it into hatred. So. Um, this Zazen practice we do, just this sitting meditation we do, um, has many other names in our tradition. Just sitting or uh, the samadhi of uh, uh, self-fulfillment samadhi um, or the jewel mirror samadhi. Um, one of the names my teacher uses is the samadhi of all beings. When we are doing this practice of sitting upright, facing ourselves, facing the wall, we are in deep communion with all beings in all space, in all time, actually. This is true. It's not just personal. It includes that, of course. But actually, on your seat, right now, during the period of zazen we just did, and always, many beings, of course, family, friends, loved ones, people, all the people who've influenced how it is that you are sitting on your seat right now. 
but also pe people and beings that you don't even remember who you maybe met 10 years ago or um, you know, the people who were walking by here 50 years ago or 200 years ago. So it's also the samadhi of all time. How is what each one of us is doing here today in our own way affecting and helping support the people, hopefully, walking by here 200 years from now. So, you know, if you take this samadhi of all beings seriously, maybe it's possible that somebody sitting could be strong enough that just by the power of your samadhi of all beings, you might be able, by your sitting, to help heal racism help stop climate disruption. But also, bodhisattva pr practitioners address suffering in the world when they get up from their cushion, when we get up and go into the world, e each in our own way, each in our own field of practice, in our own work and family and relationships. So uh, uh, another way to talk about all this, the first noble truth in Buddhism, usually is translated as suffering, dukkha. It means dissatisfactoriness, or technically, etymologically, it means that things are out of line, out of alignment, like a wheel that's, whose axle is tilted. And, you know, you can see that. <laughs> Just, you know, pick up any newspaper. But another way to think of it is uh, the first noble truth is just facing sadness. Beneath all the anger and hatred and fear, there's some pain, there's some sadness. There's some loss we've all experienced, each of us in our own way, and all of us collectively. And it's a noble truth because we can actually sit upright and still and keep, take another breath and calmly face that. There's a tremendous dignity and power in facing, just facing the sadness, just acknowledging it, just being able and willing to be present in the situation we are in, each of us in, personally and collectively. And then, of course, we respond as best we can. So, uh, you know, there's a problem in Buddhism in, in Asia that they took the teaching of karma uh, too much personally, that if there's some, something bad happens to you, that, you know, it's because of something you did in a past life. And, you know, there is personal karma, but there's also collective karma. And the teaching of non-self means that it's not just about each of us personally. So there's so many ex examples of this, um, of collective karma. Uh, you know, an easy one is uh, slavery and racism. That affects all of us in our world today. Whatever race or color we think we are, the, the legacy of that in this culture uh, affects us all. So facing karma, personal 
and collective. It's a Sangha project. How do we face the reality of this world? Of course, we need to face our own personal patterns and habits of greed, hate, and delusion. We become intimate with our own grasping and anger and fear and confusion. And the more we become friendly with ourselves, the more we see our patterns and habits of doing that, the more we don't have to act on them. We don't have to react. We don't have to harm ourselves or others. We can acknowledge both our personal and collective or societal karma. Our, we can avow our ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, and sometimes chance. So this, is a, this practice is a, uh, this samadhi of all beings that we do is a, you know, it's a sangha practice. It's a practice that we do together. And not just with the people we sit zazen with, but actually with everybody and every being in the world and in our life. So another example from the Soto tradition, Hongzhi, um, a, a teacher a century before Dogen in China, who I translated in a little book called Cultivating the Empty Field. This is just one example, but again, this shows the rhythm of practice, so I'll just read a little bit. Um, he says, in the great rest and great halting, the lips become moldy and mountains of grass grow on your tongue. So for those of you who sat sashim, maybe they sound familiar. So we take, this we take the time to stop and really, you know, really stop and be quiet. We do that sometimes. Then he says, moving straight ahead beyond this state, totally let go, washed clean and ground to a fine polish. So there is that aspect of our practice of turning within, really settling. And he says, respond with brilliant light to such unfathomable depths as the waters of autumn or the moon stamped in the sky. So when we stop and sit and you know, we have a chance to see how deep this reality is, then you must know there is a path on which to turn yourself around. When you do turn yourself around, you have no different face that can be recognized. When you have thoroughly investigated your roots back to their ultimate source, a thousand or ten thousand sages are no more than footprints on the trail. In wonder, return to the journey, avail yourself of the path, and walk ahead. In the light, there is darkness where it operates, no traces remain. With the hundred grass tips in the busy marketplace, graciously share yourself. So the hundred grass tips means all the phenomena. With the hundred grass tips in the busy marketplace, graciously share yourself. Wide open and accessible, walking along, casually mount the sounds and straddle the colors while you transcend listening and surpass watching. Perfectly unifying in this manner is simply a patch-robe monk's or a Zen practitioner's appropriate activity. Another place, he says, you must be broad-minded, whole, without relying on others. Such upright, independent spirit can, can begin not to pursue degrading situations. Here you can rest and become clean, pure and lucid, bright and penetrating. You can immediately return, accord, and respond to deal with events. So the point of this practice is, and it's not you do one first and then the other. This is this rhythm of practice that we're always going through. We stop and we sit and we settle and we see the depths of how much we are connected with all beings. 
and we go out and we respond. And, the, and, and then what I want to talk about really today is how do we respond. And, um, and of course, that's very tricky and difficult and challenging in our world today. And uh, I'll say it again, but just to say there's not one right way to respond. And maybe we each have our particular uh, talents and abilities and interests and ways of responding and inclinations towards responding. But our practice is about settling and then opening up and responding and being in the world and helping. So, you know, one way to talk about the engagement in bodhisattva practice, we can talk about it in terms of caregivers and systems changers. There's one uh, way to talk about it, to help people in need. So that's very important. It's much of, you know, American Buddhist bodhisattva engaged practice is caregiving, hospice work, working in prisons, uh, helping with soup kitchens or food pantries, calling on the sick, teaching children. Uh, so many uh, Americans and people now are doing those kinds of caregiving uh, work and, and other kinds. Um, and that's very important. The other side, which is more what I want to talk about today and what seems to be um, in our face right now, is systems changing. So there's also... Uh, and, and again, it's not that one is, you know, one is better than the other. They're both important. But systemic suffering is very clear right now. There are lots of structural causes of suffering. There's, you know, it's pretty obvious the extreme corruption of our societies, economic, political, and justice systems. Uh, this was, has, you know, this has been true for a long time, but now in the cur with the cur current administration, the damage is extreme and accelerated. And uh, probably, you know, here in Brooklyn, you know, you're doing, you know, you know a lot about this. Uh, in Chicago, we're trying to help with refugees, with immigrants, all the oppression of minorities, uh, the horrible... Uh, oppression of women that's been going on for a long, long time, of course, but is now even worse. LGBTQ people, all threatened now. All the environmental damage and, and the climate damage. So resistance is important now. What does that mean? Well, we just saw um, the resistance movement stop the transformation of health care into wealth care or at least temporarily. Um, the new attempted, the attempt by our current government to um, eliminate 26 million people from health care and, and give away huge tax breaks to the 1% or 0.1% was at least temporarily defeated yesterday. Uh, there's so many, you know, I'll, I'll just mention three, I'm just going to just mention three areas of in the world, and there's so many where um, uh, they call us the, the, the racist mass incarceration, uh, military budget and, and peace work and, and climate damage. Um, so, uh, you know, our whole 
US economy is built on racism. And I've been trying to support the Black Lives Matter movement and trying to look at white privilege as a white heterosexual male and knowing how much I, I benefit at the expense of blacks. The, the whole, again, the whole US economy is built on racism this is and slavery and this, uh, you know, the American Revolution uh, uh, historically produced lots of uh, positive um, ideals. Uh, the idea of participatory democracy, which never has been, never has happened, but uh, at least we have the idea. And that makes a huge difference. You know, if we talk, we can get into the, we, I want to have some time for discussion and we can talk about how all of this is uh, different maybe than, than in Asian uh, Buddhism. There was social engagement in Asian Buddhism, but these ideals that we have in, Ameri in, in America make a difference. But the American Revolution can also be seen as the colonists, both North and South, trying to protect slavery because it was clear that Britain was going to abolish slavery. So, you know, we can look at the American Revolution in various ways. And we can see now the mass, the very racist mass incarceration system, uh, privatized prisons, which are huge profit-making industries were, there was a bipartisan effort, you know, before the last election to eliminate them. Now they're talking about increasing them. And of course we know that uh, uh, the real problem of crime, how we need to talk about increasing education, increasing healthcare, increasing job opportunities, building infrastructure, and all those things are being, you know, take, taken away by the, new, by the proposed new budget. So, this is an area that uh, we can, this is one area where we can work to try and make change. And I'm, since I'm uh, mentioning this, I'll also mention the, the le legacy, the, our karmic, collective karmic legacy of the destruction of Native American culture and how inspiring the Standing Rock um, uh, events were this past year. And even if the uh, pipelines are now supposedly going through. Still, there's this possibility of, of change there. So these are huge topics. Each one of these is a huge topic. I'm just mentioning these just to, to look at areas where uh, work is needed. Uh, then there's the huge military budget, which is being exp you know, has been for a long time you know, uh, way, o way over the top of what's needed. There's been war, a kind of perpetual warfare in my whole lifetime that our country's involved in. And, um, you know, and yet peace, peace is possible. It's possible for human beings to get along. You know, we can see Sangha is a, is a countercultural model of people trying to cooperate instead of compete and fight each other. That's what we're here for as Sangha, to show that it's possible to try and work together. You don't need to have constant warfare. But, you know, there are powerful interests building weapons and spreading them all over and now spreading them to, to uh, you know, domestically to police forces. So there's so much to say about that. And then there's the, whole, the um, problem of climate damage, which is 
really serious. Um, so I want to recommend, um, so Koshin heard this talk in San Francisco, so I was there much of it <laughs> last year. Um, but I want to recommend uh, truthout.org. There's monthly reports by a reporter named Dar Jamal, D-A-H-R-G-A-M-A-I-L. His last report talked about methane being released in the Arctic and how uh, some scientists say that this threatens uh, a, a, a methane uh, uh, hydrate release that was, that might, might replicate the um, mass extinction at the end of the Permian age, which was um, bad at numbers, what it is, 250 million years ago. I mean, the numbers in terms of the reality, the reality, not the, you know, not the Chinese hoax, the reality of, of science, the reality of climate is just scary. Um, um, and yet we don't know what will happen with climate. The future is not set. Um, and in just in the last 10 or 15 years, we have an alternative to fossil fuels. There are now solar and wind technologies, which actually, if governments and policymakers decided to, to implement these, we could have an alternative they, they could pr provide all of our energy needs. We have viable technological substitutes. And yet our current Secretary of State from ExxonMobil and, uh, and, and knew about and other fossil fuel corporations have been making profits. They basically knew in the 1970s through research they sponsored what climate damage would do and what it, what it would happen through it uh, because of the fossil fuels they were promoting. And they went ahead and uh, have continued in making quarterly prop, uh, personal profits. So, um, okay. So we have all these uh, things happening. These, these, just, these are just a few, a few examples of what's happening in our, in our world now. So um, how do we respond to that? Well, I would suggest that when we become aware of what's happening in the world now, part of our work, part of our response, part of precept work is to uh, look and see how can we respond. Part of our work is to turn within and, and see that there is this possibility of calm and wonder and communion with all beings and the ultimate. But then what do we do to respond to the damage that's being done in the world? I think this is part of our practice too. Or I want to suggest that it can be part of our practice. And again, there's not one right way to respond. There's not one right, right tactic. I've been working, starting to work with Indivisible, which uh, was involved in lobbying Congress and, and doing the, um, uh, the meetings with Congress people that helped to stop the, uh, the health care, wealth care uh, bill. But I would suggest that maybe marching in the streets is important. So uh, many in my sangha were out at the 
in Chicago and some went to, New to Washington for the Women's March right after the inauguration. So this isn't about politics in any usual way. It's, I, don't, you know, I don't care about Democrats or Republicans. This is about how do we uh, express what we, what we see by settling into facing the sadness and the reality of our world. But I think marching in the streets can be important. I'll just come back to that. But I want to say that change happens, that feeling it's hopeless is, um, and that there's nothing you can do is, um, nothing you can do individually as well as collectively. That's, that's a delusion. Change happens. That's axiomatic in Buddhism. There's so many examples. And change doesn't seem to happen because of elected political leaders, but through the awareness and actions of many people. It's because of all of us that change happens. So, you know, the, in my lifetime, the Berlin Wall came down. Apartheid ended. The Soviet Union collapsed. Those things happened very, very suddenly as in terms of what the pundits and experts on those subjects uh, imagined. <laughs> After lots and lots of work by lots and lots of people, suddenly there was a change. More recently, the LGBTQ movement, after lots of work, suddenly the Supreme Court made gay, gay marriage legal. You know, there's still lots of work to do. A hundred years ago, women were not allowed to vote. There's still lots of work to do. Uh, women's, women's rights and health are still under attack. But a hundred years ago, women couldn't even vote. Women's vote didn't happen because some, some, some guy decided, oh, let's let women vote. Uh, women's, women, were, uh, women were given the vote after decades of lobbying and marching in the streets. Change happens. It happens in our own lives, too. And you know, we don't exactly know how it happens. But I want to suggest that our practice of upright sitting gives us a special steadiness of patience, a dynamic, active patience, a calm, a power, flexibility. We can turn our anger into commitment and awareness. We have a resource to offer to activism. This isn't about self-righteousness or we, we have to not be caught by anger, but we can transform it. We also have a, the resource through our practice and, and teaching of uh, bodhisattva time, of seeing long lineages of uh, teaching and dharma, ancient Buddhists, long lineages of practice. long lineages of ancestors, not just in terms of Zen ancestors, but you know, culturally, politically, lineages of, in music and art and writing. Um, Martin Luther King talked about the fierce urgency of now, but also the arc of the moral universe bending towards justice. So this is long work, and there's not one right way to respond. Again, there are are many ways. There's lobbying legislators that are just talking about it. I believe in preaching to the choir, so that's why I'm here today. <laughs> um, and there's people on the street, and that makes changes. 
So I, I want to have some discussion, but I'll end with um, a story I heard from Dan Ellsberg, who um, uh, published the Pentagon Papers that verified what many of us knew about how horrible the Vietnam War was. Um, I got to know Dan because of uh, the year before I moved to Chicago, January 2007. During 2006, I led a weekly, I started and managed a weekly vigil teach-in about torture outside the UC Berkeley Law School because John Yu was teaching there. Uh, and he still is, unfortunately. But anyway, he was the guy who wrote the torture memo for George W. Bush that, that tried to legitimize uh, the torture program that was going on. And it still goes on in some ways. But we had various people, and I had Dan Ellsberg um, there a few times. Anyway, he, t he, told it, he tells a story. Um, so this is a story about demonstrations and the possibilities of demonstrations. Uh, and he says, he's verified, this is a true story, uh, that uh, sometime in the early 70s, um, President Nixon and Secretary of State Kissinger were sitting in the Oval Office. And uh, Mr. Nixon decided to drop atomic bombs on Hanoi. Then he looked outside the Oval Office, and there were, I don't know, a few hundred thousand people protesting the war that day in Washington. So back then, there were these huge demonstrations, and as there ha are, are these days again, against the, back then against the Vietnam War. And he said, well, maybe I shouldn't do it today. And it, it didn't happen. And those people. They went home, heard on television that President Nixon said, oh, he didn't know about the demonstration. He was watching a football game. And maybe they thought, gee, these demonstrations don't, don't make any difference. It's hopeless. But they actually stopped an atomic bomb. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.